Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the globe listening on HughHewitt.com, watching on Univision. Good morning to you watching on Univision. I'm joined now by, because it's the last radio hour of the week, the Hillsdale Dialogue commences a deep dive into something that matters very, very much and goes on for years, not just the headlines, but today they intersect because the, uh, the Mueller report will matter for many, many years. And my guest is Hillsdale President Dr. Larry Arn. Uh, he's been president of college forever. He's older than dirt, but he's my friend, and I'm older than dirt, so we've been doing this for a long time. Dr. Arn, uh, a, a blessed Passover, a happy Good Friday, happy Easter, and a good, blessed Good Friday to you. Yeah, it's raining here, so I'm turning into mud, not dirt. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the college do on this day that is Passover and Good Friday? Does it shut down? Does it shutter? Or do you do classes until noon? What's the, what's the deal at Hillsdale today? Well, everybody but me gets the day off. I have to do Hugh Hewitt. Yeah, there you uh, go. Well, that's, yeah. I'm here. I'm here. That's what we're doing. We're, uh, we're, uh, there's a lot of piety at Hillsdale College, and so there's church services, several today, and uh most kids don't go home for Easter. It's not long enough break. You really just get today off. And, you know, Monday we go back to work. But uh, uh, so they're around, and they're, Easter is Easter vigil, tonight, you know, last night and more today. So there's a lot of that going on today. How goes the cathedral or the chapel construction? Uh, well, I've, I've this last week given two midnight tours of it. And uh, it's staggering. How do you stay up that late? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm an old man, but I'm not dirt yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, also, I work around young people, so I, I won't retire. I'll just die one day. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, the exterior is done except for one thing. The interior is the things that are going on now are painting, plastering. I think that might be done. And then painting. And that's mostly done, and then putting in floors and finishing stairwells and stuff like that. And they can't do the last thing outside, which is grand. And, they, and when you walk in there, I mean, there's 70-foot-tall limestone columns in there. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. And, uh, it's, you know, Duncan Strike's a pretty good architect, and so it's got proportion and loveliness and pretty, pretty good is is uh, not quite adequate maybe america's greatest uh, architect well he's uh, certainly you could say that about being a church architect and that's his specialty and he this is the biggest one he's ever built and uh we have a joke uh it turns out that at hillsdale college since i've been its president we've built about the same number of buildings that duncan stroik has huh. and uh, <laughs> a little a little more than he and uh he heard that I said to his to his staff that I had as much experience as he did, and he wrote wrote me and said, uh, "Why is one building the best?" And I wrote back and said, "It costs more." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, with that background, I'm curious. We're going to get to the Mueller report, but your thoughts, reactions to watching Notre Dame burn, and the reactions to it in France, at home, and abroad. I know that in many Catholic churches across the United States, a second collection will be taken up at Easter, in which I'm looking forward to contribute, because everyone wants to be a part of restoring it, which is an interesting moment in Western civilization. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things collected at hillsdale.edu. We talk about Western civilization. Notre Dame's been along, around longer than Hillsdale. It's 850 yeah. years old. That's right. What do, you, what do you make of this whole week? Well, I was, of course, horrified by it. Uh, also, I have a little bit of knowledge about it from Duncan Stroik and others. Uh, our chapel, we believe, if we maintain it carefully, will last 300 years. 
And and I said, but Westminster Abbey is more than a thousand years old, or Notre Dame, eight hundred and fifty. He said, yeah. He said, this building has steel in it. And I said, that's bad. He said, no, it's good. He said, it makes it cheaper and faster and stronger. It uh, it it makes it it gives it more integrity in each individual part, but steel decays. And so the things that last more than a thousand years are made out of the earth. They're made out of rocks. And uh, and then when you build it, they so so those buildings are you know I, I if it fell I don't know if if it could be rebuilt because I've been struggling to get masons for our grand thing, but it's not like Notre Dame. So so another thing about buildings like that is that they stand up by leaning. The parts lean on each other. So, you know, the famous thing Notre Dame has is flying buttresses that uh, supports on the outside of the building. They're quite beautiful, made of stone. And so those buildings lean, lean on those outwards. Uh, also, there's some leaning in, especially in, say, uh, uh, Westminster Hall attached to the Palace of Westminster, the oldest part of that hall. Uh, that, that building, you know, Anne Boleyn and Sir Thomas More were tried in that Westminster Hall. And uh, that has a tremendous, beautiful roof that looks like the, it's like you're standing inside an upside-down old wooden ship because the ship uh, master, the ship's craftsman, the ship architect designed that building well, that building leans in, and the roof is actually holding up the walls. They would collapse wow. inwards and see if, if, the, if the roof burned. So I was afraid about that, about Notre Dame. But, of course, maybe, I don't know. Now I'm getting beyond my knowledge about Notre Dame. But it's possible that one of the reasons the walls stood, which is a great relief, is that it is constructed with flying buttresses. Uh, you know, uh, Westminster Hall doesn't have those. So it, it, when a fire comes, it's not like the granite, big granite blocks are going to burn, but the, the architectural balance of it could be upset, and then the whole thing could fall down, and it didn't. And so they can probably fix it. I'm reading an article this morning that says that it's in some state of disrepair. And then a friend of mine, a perceptive friend of mine, wrote me a letter and said, do you think it'll be... Uh, rebuilt in the spirit that it's a place of God, or is it just a cultural cultural heritage item now? Well, this brings me to, I, I was unaware, Rod Dreher informed me that the French government expropriated all the churches in 1905 so that it's the property of the French government. And I'm confused by that because there was mass there on Sunday. The Palm Sunday mass was videotaped by others. Do you know the relationship? Does the Archbishop of Paris have any control over the redesign or reconstruction of the interior? I don't know. Um, you know, I do know that things like that, uh, you know, the expropriation of churches, are easier in countries that have a history of established religions. So, you know, Westminster Abbey is ultimately the property of the crown. The crown appoints the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the senior cleric, in the Church of England. And uh, the Dean of Westminster, the guy who runs over it, is appointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and so in some indirect control of the Queen herself, which means under some indirect control of her executive government. Now, Britain has old uh, and, and firm 
safeguards against any partisanizing of the church. That's part of the of the effect of the split, the Reformation in England, that left the Church of England really very Catholic in most ways. But they uh, split with your friend, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. And uh, the king has often tried, Henry VIII was very aggressive about this, taken property from the church, but that's not liked in Britain. And I don't know as much about France, um, uh, but I know that the connections between the great religious practices in France as in England have always been mixed up in government in ways that they're not in this country. Now, I was also impressed by the solemnity and the uh, applause that greeted the fireman chaplain who rushed in to save the crown of thorns, believed to have been worn by Jesus on this day, Good Friday. And he risked life and limb to get that as well as the sacrament. It wrongly reported a statue of Jesus. He went in to get the sacrament, the, the Eucharist. And he, he came out alive with both. Uh, that was inspiring to people. Do you think there might be any upside to this disaster? Well, the, uh, the uh, sense of God, you know, is, is not going to die. And that's because it's a sort of, uh, um, that's because, um, you know, the implication of God is about us in various ways. And one way is, whatever makes us better than a dog is some perfection in us, some things we can do. But in us, that's imperfect. You know, human rationality and the whole human being are imperfect. What would a perfect thing look like? The question is raised by making the comparison between a human being and a beast. And so people are not going to forget about God. Uh, you know, it's very common, like Richard Dawkins, the you know, famous popular atheist. He's very concerned about God. He can't shut up about him. And so, yeah, I think that there's latent in all of us, and I think prevalent in many places, this concerned with God here on this Good Friday. It's not going away on this Passover Good Friday. Don't go anywhere. We are going to talk with Dr. Arn about the Mueller report and Attorney General Barr's um, absolutely dispositive discussion of it when we return to the Hewitt Show. It's the Hilldale Dialogue. 22 minutes after the hour, America. Have a blessed Passover, a blessed Good Friday if you are listening. I am live in the ReliefFactor.com studio during the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale. Available at Hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations from these, the last radio hours of weeks, stretching back to 2013 with Dr. Larry Arn, my guest today, or one of his colleagues, are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Just talking to Dr. Arn off the air, and, and I was asking him if Mass will be able to be celebrated in the new chapel, which is going to be knocked down gorgeous, if we are to believe Dr. Arn, and I do believe Dr. Arn. I haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, and I think that requires the, the permission of the bishop in which the, the, the place of Hillsdale resides. Would that not be the bishop of Grand Rapids? Mm-mm. Lansing. Lansing. Yeah, his name is Boyer. I know him. He's a really good guy. No, then he'll give you the paper. But, yeah, yeah. you know, you're going to have to have a first mass, right? Yeah. And I, I'm going to nominate Archbishop Chaput to co-celebrate that, along with your bishop who will want He'll want dibs on the first mass. You'll probably get everyone you want for the first mass. Yeah. If it's going to last 300 years, they're going to want pictures. They're going to want to celebrate the sacrament in that place at that time. 
I'm going to guess, I'm going to confess that I'm puzzled about you Catholics because there is in a not wonderful room for it every Thursday morning on Hillsdale College a Catholic mass. So that's happening already. And uh and that room is used for all kinds of things so it hasn't been consecrated on a, as a Catholic church or any kind of church. Uh and our building is, you know, Christian and ecumenical, but there's there's both a, you know, it's a very large building and we'll see 1,400 people or 1,500 people, but um, it depends on whether the fire marshal is listening. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, it, uh, there's also a day chapel, and uh, it's actually not big enough for the Thursday morning Catholic services because they get, you know, I think probably something a little north of a third of our students are Catholic, maybe 40% even, and, uh, and they go. You know what's going to be fascinating to me? Duncan Stroik also designed the uh, chapel of the Virgin Mary of the Holy Trinity at Thomas Aquinas College in California. Yes. And there is going to be a competition between those two places as to who has the better chapel. Uh, however, uh, the paperwork is, is paperwork. I mean, I, there's got to be paperwork, but they've got to be able to do it. I'm just saying, if yeah. you could have been at the first mass at Notre Dame, wouldn't you have wanted to be there? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, there's a... You know, I will say that there's a clergy interest in appearing in our chapel. I hear it from this source and that. And uh, we don't, you know, we have to work all that out because our our college is a Christian college believing in freedom of religion. And that means we've never, 175 years soon, had a faith statement to attend the college. Uh, just about everybody is a Christian and all promise to respect that. And uh, and so um, you know that it's going to be a service where uh, all Christian faiths can have a look in, and uh, and our chaplain, who happens to be an Anglican, is uh, that's good for us because uh, one of the motions we notice here is that as kids go to Hillsdale College, they become more liturgical, formally formally liturgical in their religious practice. And we think that that's because we read a, read a lot of old books, and we find out where all that stuff was born. And so the Anglican Church is liturgical, and it's and it's Protestant, and it's terribly like Catholic. Yeah, it's a gateway. It's a gateway drug to Catholicism. There you go. That's right. All yeah, right. Now yeah. I've got to read you the the president's two tweets as we transition. Statements are made by me by certain people in the crazy Mueller report in itself written by 18 angry Democrat Trump haters, which are fabricated, totally untrue. Watch out for people that take so-called notes when the notes never existed until needed, because I never agreed to testify. It was necessary for me to respond to statements made in the report about me, some of which are total Yes, I can't say what he wrote. And only given to make the other person look good or me look bad. This was an illegally started hoax that should never have happened. Uh, 30 seconds, Larry Arn. He's fighting. He's, he's exonerated. He's won. He's a, he holds the field, but he's still fighting. Well, the most important question remaining after all of this is not the one that's going to nominate the news, and that is, what is the provenance or origin of this investigation and the public claims that are made? Because... That looks to me like that's probably a dirty story, and there are a lot of powerful people who might get embarrassed by it. We will come back and discuss that very question in just a few minutes. You are listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show, Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, including the application for you, your son or daughter, granddaughter, grandson, is at hillsdale.edu. Go and get it. sensitive thing, right? Because if you go and you uh, start investigating somebody, 
that's a serious thing and a major problem in their life. Let me let me pause for a moment because I don't want to be accused by emo over at Media Matters of misstating the fact. They always listen to every hour of every show. It is not necessary to have an underlying crime to actually commit obstruction. It is necessary to have corrupt intent. And Attorney General Barr spoke to that and said simply, there is not evidence of that. There's indeed a lot of, uh, there, while there might be evidence of that, there's indeed a lot of countervailing evidence that sharply, as Andrew McCarthy put it, cut against the idea of corrupt intent. Yeah, and, and I was going to say that and also add that uh, uh, it's still true that if you didn't do the deal and then you get convicted for some answer you gave that's questionable and that happens a lot. And, yes. You know, left and the right. Process all crimes. Of people. Yep. Uh, so, and that's, that's questionable. Uh, now, but the corrupt intent thing is a good standard, right? Because that would mean that you were, you had a criminal intent. Uh, so that's the, uh, the first thing. The second thing I'll say is, on this question of the uh, obstruction of justice and criminal charges against the president, it's better to remember just the big things, right? The, whole, the, 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 the basic structure of our government is that the kinds of government power are divided into three parts, ex- legislative, executive, and judicial. And that is thought to be, said to be, by the people who wrote the Constitution, the most important thing about it. So the president is the executive, he executes the laws, which means enforce the laws, among other things, and means that he can prosecute people, and he's the supreme prosecutor. Now, there's no doubt that it's a horrible thing and a removable offense if the president uh, uh, distorts his law enforcement powers or obstructs the course of justice from a corrupt intent or for his own interest. So that's that, that would be a classic high crime and misdemeanor. And that's what you can be impeached for. And so it's obvious that if a president does that, the Congress of the United States can investigate it. And then in the method that's set up, which is the House will vote articles of impeachment, and then, the, and then they will send a team over, and they will prosecute. Uh, they do it for judges many times, and for presidents a couple of times, I think only two. Uh, and they will send prosecutors over there, and the Senate will sit like a jury, and the Senate will vote. And that's a two-step legal-slash-political process. And here's why it has to be that way. Because if you appointed the tribunal on a continuous basis to decide whether the president has committed a crime, effectively that tribunal would control the president. But we elected the president. And he is our officer, and we can remove him. And to, to subject, subject him to someone permanent, uh, overlooking everything with the ability to remove him, that effectively makes that, that person or that group the president. Superior to the president. And In, we, didn't, we didn't elect them. Right? We did not want that system. That's not the constitutional system. So it's, a, so it's also a great feature of the government that the con- Congress has passed way too many general laws that appoint ongoing agencies to perform all the functions of government. And that all of them, each agency, and that means passing laws, enforcing laws, and judging claims under those laws. And that's not separation of powers, and that's a very unwise thing for the Congress to do. But it has given rise to this idea in this age that, the, that, that those agencies are in some way or another sovereign, 
And when they come under pressure, they always say the same thing, and this is in the Mueller report. They say, Congress has this power. And what they mean when they say that, although they don't make it explicit, and as far as I can find in the Mueller report, they don't make it explicit. Uh, what they mean when they say that is, I have this power. Yes, they do. They're grabbing it. They're saying it's been delegated to me. That's right. And so then, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, it's obvious, for example, did the President of the United States obstruct justice by firing James Comey? And that's a there's there's complications to that question, uh, but they start with the they have to start with the fact that James Comey carries a gun or he can if he wants to, and he orders around a lot of people who do. They use force, physical violence on people, and where does the authority for that come from? And if it comes from the American people, then then it's got to reside in somebody they elect. And so then it's obvious that the President of the United States, as he can appoint, so he can fire the FBI director or the, just, or the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General. You, know, you will find in part two, Robert, uh, James Comey telling the President that he promises him honest loyalty. Honest loyalty. That's an explicit promise made in their one-on-one dinner. I am curious, since you are the president of an institution and you have many people gathered in your cabinet, which I assume meets on a regular basis as you are not a tyrant, uh, that if you had someone in a position of authority similar to Comey's, uh, it wouldn't be your provost, but it would be something, maybe your general counsel. And they left every meeting and they prepared secret notes of what they say you said. And they did not tell you they were doing that practice but they would leak those notes to other people in the world. What would you make of the character of that individual? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's disloyalty. And, you know, if, if somebody working for me, you know, if anybody around here, by the way, makes an allegation that I've done something improper, I tell the board about it, right? And that's one reason why they think I don't do things that are improper. You know, and, and I, I can't think of any senior officer working for me, or any, maybe not any employees who have made such an allegation, but I've had a time or two a student say, you did something wrong. Well, I send that to the chairman of the board. As one, a great practice. The day I get it, you know. And then, you know, if they're, I've never had a serious one of those, but you never know what will happen. And above all, you have to, I, so I have two jobs. I have to protect the authority of the presidency, which is the authority of the board. And I'll tell you where that comes from. The board is, exists in law. Nonprofits belong to their beneficiaries. And beneficiaries are not just the ones alive today. It means all of the ones in the future, too. And, and the ones in the past, because if you protect the college and its mission, that means it's keeping its commitments and discharging its, its obligations in, contained in its charter. Everybody who manages the college, starting with me, is a paid person. And that places me in a kind of conflict of interest, right? My interest, my job, my, you know, my livelihood, all that's all wrapped up in it. And so the board is the group of people who relieve me of that. I need their authority to have mine. And when I protect my authority, I am protecting their authority the neutral, dis- disinterested people who govern the college. I manage the college, they govern the college. 
And the way I vindicate my responsibility to them is by telling them everything important, including especially everything negative. And so do you believe that the senior levels of the Bureau and the intelligence community were serving the president well when he was the president-elect by not telling him? Devin Nunes is out saying a hidden passage in the Mueller report shows that the, the Steele dossier tainted the whole thing. Do you think those people were serving him well? No. And, you know, I mean, uh, Strzok and McCabe in particular, uh, Strzok, as far as I know, only in private emails that have been discovered or leaked. But McCabe in public now, they go around saying that the president is a bad man and they were trying to restrain him. And uh, and those emails that Strzok wrote, uh, those are in the course of doing his business, of doing his work. And that's not for them to do, right? That's uh, Just think what a problem that, that is if the people who use force, like one of the reasons the American military is, A, the strongest force in the land, and B, obedient, has to do with two things. One is the military has to be the strongest force in the land. It's got to be big enough and strong enough to protect us from other big powers. But, but B, George Washington, who made such a spectacle of himself over and over, resigning his powerful offices after he had achieved what he was set out to do. And he didn't march, you know, a bunch of soldiers, a bunch of his officers wanted to march on the Capitol or remove themselves to the far west and leave us to stew in their, our own juice because we hadn't paid them as we promised to do, right? And Washington put that to bed. In other words, when it comes to politics, that's the world where the people get to rule, and there are processes for that, and every officer of the government, every senior officer of the government, takes an oath to uphold that, and they're supposed to be agents to uphold that. And so if they think a dangerous guy might get elected president of the United States, they have the same right as we do to vote against him. But what they don't have the right to do is to two things, I think. One is it's improper for them to agitate against him in public because they're holding officers of trust and power. And two, it is certainly wrong of them to use their offices of trust and power in any partisan way. And that's what, you know, the, 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 the big deal, the thing that will not be prominent or the foremost thing in the news, but I think it's probably the most important thing in the news, is this investigation that Barr has announced into how did exactly did our law enforcement and intelligence agencies get into all this? Exactly the point of my Washington Post column this morning. Who is lawyering up now? Coming back for one more segment with Dr. Larry Arnes, the Hillsdale College. Passover and Good Friday edition concludes Don't Go Anywhere. Welcome back, America, on this Passover Good Friday edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show from the Relief Factor Studio on the West Coast. I'm flying back to the Beltway tomorrow. We'll be talking to you from inside the belly of the beast on Monday. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. I can't get him to stop talking about his chapel. He's like <laughs> Sidney Poitier in Lilies of the Field. I might build me a chapel. And uh, what were you saying? You want it to look best when it's full, but what happens when they only have a couple hundred people there? Well, yeah, so it's a kind of principle of human organization that if you have a really great room and it's too big for the number of people in it, that's great if they're all looking at each other around a table. Then they look around and say, all this is for us. Wow. Just imagine yourself having dinner in the middle of St. Paul's Cathedral. 
you know, and you look around and say, wow, this is really cool. But if you have a ceremony where people are gathered, that's what such buildings are made for, and there's just a few in there. It looks like nobody came. And so we have put extensive balconies in the back and on the sides, and we don't have to use those for the regular minor services. And the side aisles, the columns, make a, a, uh, a division from the center. The center part holds about 600. And so if there's a couple of hundred there, we're going to block off the back seats. I just thought what we were talking before, because you keep asking me about this. It's not me, Hugh, it's you. Um, uh, we're going to think of some elegant way to cordon off rows. We're not going to use police tape. But... Um, and then we'll gather people up in the front, and I'm told, we've worked on it, that the acoustics will be good for that, very good for that, too. And, uh, and so, you know, there's an altar in there that's rollable around and a place to store it, and we can roll the altar right up to the front of the chancel. The chancel is big enough to hold the whole choir and orchestra, and the orchestra is like 85 pieces. Oh my gosh! I and, cannot uh, wait to see this. And not the and not the, so it's big, right? And it's, they put the floor in that too, and it's just beautiful. Now I got to uh, close with something completely different. Yeah. One of our sponsors is Twenty Three and Me. That's the number two three and Me dot com, and people can go there twenty three and Me dot com slash you and get get uh, get started. So I did this. This is the ancestry and health. De- I just got the answer back. Just got the answer back yesterday. To my shock and surprise, I'm not shocked and surprised that I'm 99.9% Northwestern European, and that I'm English and Irish. However, I am surprised that my predominant genetic grouping is French and German, and I am very surprised, as I've never heard a whisper of this, that in the last 200 years, it is most likely that my genes come from the canton of Bern, Switzerland, which I bring up to you since you and I lived in Switzerland throughout the 2016 campaign. I don't know anything about Bern. I've never been to Bern. I've never heard of Bern in the family tree. What do you know about Bern? We were naturally in Switzerland, at least I was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was there too. And, uh, and yeah, so first of all, I have been to Bern. And uh, here's, here's the thing that will show you that you're not like the Swiss at all. Uh, I said to a waiter in Switzerland one time, I said, uh, this is a wonderfully efficient hotel. <laughs> and, and, the, and the waiter replied, we're Swiss. That's German without the sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying, I am not efficient, or maybe you're saying I have a sense of humor. That might be <laughs> no, a... No. Well, the flightiness and the stubbornness of you would be explained by the French and the Germans. The, French, <laughs> the, Swiss, the canton of, Is it a pretty city? Uh, not as much as some of them. Yeah, it's nice. It's a financial center. Uh, it's, uh, Switzerland is gorgeous. You know, Switzerland is a unique thing. It's worth knowing about. It's a, it's a fortress nation. And their famous neutrality is made possible by the fact that they're a fortress nation up in the mountains, see, and that makes it beautiful. And also, everybody's armed and trained all the time. Every adult. I think women now, too, adult, is required to keep their military weapon in their house and ready to go 
for the rest of their life. Well, you are not quite there, but Hillsdale is a fortress college. It's the lantern of reason in the north. And this is a fortress radio show. We stand for things and we defend them. But I don't know anything about Hess, Germany, where the second likeliest uh, uh, forebears come from. I don't know where Hess is. They're warrior people, right? And uh, the Hessians, right, who fought in the revolution. No, they're the bad guys. Well, they were. The rentables. But they were, (laughs) their import and chief source of national revenue was they rented out their army. And yep. the, army, the army was really good. Until right? Trenton and, came along, right? Weren't they sleeping? Yeah. Well, so George III hired him. You know, just think how this is, you know, this struck the colonists as outrageous, right? He sent his own troops, and they didn't like that. And then he sent these foreign hired Hessian mercenaries who were not just soldiers of fortune out to make a bunch of money. This is the way they served their king. And they were very good soldiers. Oh, my God. Until they lost. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, a blessed Passover, a wonderful Good Friday, and a happy Easter to you and yours in Hillsdale, the lighthouse of reason, the lantern of post of reason in the north. Thank you so much for a great Hillsdale dialogue. Uh, Happy Easter to uh, Adam and Ben and Generalissimo and to all of you who are listening. Happy blessed Passover to my Jewish friends and to all of you. We'll be back Monday. Hopefully by that time, the fever will have broken in the media and they will have moved on to real issues, not the fake investigation. Well, it was a real investigation of a fake crime. I'll be back on Monday, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.